Hi there, it's Bapu. I know it's been a long time since you heard my voice, and I hope you've all been well. This episode of Freakonomics MD is special for a few reasons. First of all, my new book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health, is available today. I wrote it with my Harvard colleague and friend, Dr. Chris Worsham, who's been a guest on this show. It's about how chance occurrences affect our lives, our health, and what we can learn from them. If you've enjoyed Freakonomics MD over the last couple of years, I think you'll really like the book. And if you're a listener, not a reader, Chris and I actually recorded the audiobook ourselves. On today's episode, I'm excited to give you a sneak preview of the book. It's an excerpt from one of my favorite chapters, titled Tom Brady, ADHD, and a Really Bad Headache. Give it a listen and stay for an announcement at the end. The chapter starts with a story about the NFL quarterback and seven-time Super Bowl champ Tom Brady. He was recruited by the University of Michigan, but ended up redshirting his freshman year, meaning he didn't play in games but practiced with the team. This gave him an extra year just to train. Did that extra year change the trajectory of his career? In sports, an extra year can matter a lot. You may have heard the famous finding about the National Hockey League, that players born in January are overrepresented because throughout their entire adolescent years, they are the oldest and most physically dominating players on their team. Malcolm Gladwell talked about this in his book, Outliers. So what in the world does this have to do with health? Well, a lot, in fact. On that note, here's an excerpt from Random Acts of Medicine, which I hope you'll buy today. Anywhere in which age cutoffs arbitrarily divide kids into different groups, a situation will be generated in which some are older than others, sometimes significantly. The most obvious example of this is in school. When a state dictates that a kindergarten entrant be five years old before September 1, that kindergarten class is going to be composed of kids whose ages span as much as a year. A child born on August 31st will be 364 days younger than one born on September 1st, even though both will belong in the same class. At that early age, one additional year of life is no small thing. The oldest kids in the kindergarten class could have as much as 20% more experience here on planet Earth, not to mention the accompanying physical growth, than the youngest kids in the same class. Teachers and school systems, however, apply the same set of expectations for all kids in that class, regardless of the month of their birth. They're taught the same lessons, evaluated by the same metrics, and expected to behave the same way. It may not make sense that we expect the same behavior and scholastic performance from kids with 20% differences in age, but to some extent we must, and we certainly do. A few of us, I, along with Harvard colleagues Timothy Layton, Michael Barnett, and Tanner Hicks, wanted to know what impact the relative age effect might have in the classroom when it comes to children's health. In particular, we wanted to see if it affected diagnosis rates of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, a condition marked by inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity 
ADHD has been increasingly diagnosed in school-age children over the past several decades. The CDC estimated in 2016 that some 9.4% of children aged 2 to 18, 12.9% of boys, and 5.6% of girls have received a diagnosis of ADHD. Our hypothesis was that when kids who were up to a year apart in age sat in the same class, with the same expectations placed upon them by teachers and parents, the younger kids would have more trouble meeting those expectations. They would have a harder time sitting at a desk all day, paying attention, and suppressing impulsive behavior, simply because they were younger. In turn, teachers would be more likely to raise concerns about ADHD for these younger kids, concerns that could make their way to parents and ultimately that could find kids in the doctor's office. Doctors who are by now primed to think about ADHD when they hear that a child is having behavioral trouble compared with their peers may be more likely to diagnose ADHD and even to prescribe medications. We weren't the first to consider the role of relative age in ADHD diagnosis. Previous research had provided some evidence in support of our hypothesis, but it either relied on data from surveys, less reliable than actual diagnoses, didn't include large enough numbers of kids at school entry, wasn't conducted in the United States, or examined older data that may not reflect current medical practice. Still, the earlier findings were persuasive enough to urge us onward. Digging into the same massive insurance claims database that had informed the flu shot study in the last chapter, we examined data on more than 400,000 American children who entered kindergarten from 2012 to 2014. Because we knew the states in which the children lived, we could see when their birthdays fell relative to the state's cutoff date for kindergarten entry. So, for example, at the time the data was collected, 18 states used September 1 as their cutoff, which meant that kids born in August would have just turned 5 when they started kindergarten, whereas kids born in September would be just shy of 6. As with influenza, there should be no obvious biological differences in the risk of ADHD based simply on a child's birthday. So, we could group kids by their birth month and assume that they were counterfactual to each other. That is, what happened to the group of kids born in August is what would have happened to the kids born in September had they been born in August, and vice versa. If we saw differences in ADHD rates between kids born in one month versus the other, we could deduce that they were the result of external factors and not some biologically inherent feature. Building on this intuition, we compared the rate of ADHD diagnosis for kids born in August with that of kids born in September. We hypothesized that for kids going to school in states with September 1st cutoffs, kids with August birthdays, the youngest in their class, would be more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than those with September birthdays, the oldest in the same class. Here's what we found. In states with a September 1st cutoff, kids born in August, had a 34% higher rate of ADHD diagnosis and treatment than those in the same class born in September of the previous year. Were our findings due to the relative age effect? It seemed likely, but we wanted to see if we could find further support. There were two ways to go about it. 
One was that we could compare kids born in July versus August and September versus October in those states with a September 1st cutoff to make sure that any observed differences in ADHD rates between August and September kids weren't mirrored elsewhere. After all, if our hypothesis was correct, we wouldn't expect to see big differences in the July-August or September-October groups, kids who sat in the same classrooms and whose ages might differ by only a few weeks. Alternatively, we could compare kids born in August and September in states that didn't have a September 1st cutoff, where the cutoff for kindergarten was August 1st or October 1st, say. In these states, the August and September classmates should only, on average, be a month apart in age. So we shouldn't see a marked difference in ADHD diagnosis. If we did see a significant difference between those August and September kids, it would suggest to us that some other factor was at play, and not just the school entry cutoff. For example, in line with flu shots, August kids might be more likely to have had an extra annual doctor's visit, which leads to a greater likelihood of an ADHD diagnosis. What do these analyses show? In states with a September 1st cutoff, there was no significant difference in ADHD diagnosis rates between kids in the same class born in July versus August or September versus October. And in states without a September 1st cutoff, there wasn't a significant difference between August and September-born kids. Taken together, it bolstered our initial hypothesis. The relative age effect in ADHD diagnosis of young kids was real. We could take things a step further still. While it made sense that ADHD diagnoses would be influenced by a child's age relative to peers, it wouldn't make sense for a child's relative age to affect the diagnosis of diseases like asthma and diabetes. Unlike ADHD, whose diagnosis depends on comparing children's behavior with that of their peers, these diseases are more objectively diagnosed, with pulmonary function tests for asthma, blood tests for diabetes. If we did observe a difference in rates of asthma or diabetes in August and September-born children, that would raise a red flag for us. There must then be some other underlying biological difference between August and September-born children. We therefore repeated our analysis, only this time looking at diagnosis rates for asthma, diabetes, and several other conditions. Not surprisingly, there was no significant difference between August-born and September-born kids for these falsification conditions. As for ADHD, we didn't just stop at diagnosis. Where there's a diagnosis, a treatment follows. We were interested in medication use among kids said to have ADHD. Stimulant drugs such as Ritalin and Adderall are commonly prescribed, and when used appropriately, they can be beneficial in terms of calming hyperactivity and enhancing focus. But they carry with them the risk of appetite suppression, not to mention psychiatric and sleep disturbance. Our question, were younger kids more likely to be prescribed these treatments than their older classmates? It turns out they were, and not by a little. Kids diagnosed with ADHD and born in August received an average of 120 more days of medication than kids born in September. In other words, younger kids with ADHD 
were being treated more intensely, even though, as our previous study suggested, there was no apparent biological reason to do so. Moreover, doctors didn't seem to be revising their diagnoses on the basis of a child's relative age. We have to admit that, as clinicians, we can well imagine why that's the case. As a younger child gets older, their behavior might seem to improve, which doctors and parents could quite reasonably attribute to the effects of medication, leading to refill after refill of the drug. However, the actual reason the child's behavior is changing could simply be that they're maturing, the relative age gap between them and their peers starting to close. It becomes only truer as they get older still. The relative difference between a 5- and 6-year-old is a lot greater than the relative difference between a 9- and a 10-year-old. We blew by an important statistic earlier. ADHD is more than twice as common in boys as it is in girls. There are different types of ADHD, the hyperactive and inattentive types. When it comes to the hyperactive type, the difference between the genders is only more pronounced, four times as prevalent in boys as in girls. To see how the relative age might manifest itself differently in boys and girls, we ran our original analyses again, only this time looking at the genders separately. The relative age effect seemed to be stronger in boys than in girls, a finding that shouldn't be surprising considering that boys make up a larger share of ADHD diagnoses in general. For girls, the size of the effect was so small that it didn't rise to the level of statistical significance. What's going on here? It's hard to say for sure. It could be that developmental differences are more pronounced among young boys, such that a year of age for kindergarten boys is a bigger developmental gap, or at least is perceived that way, than it is for girls. Because ADHD is more commonly diagnosed in boys, it may also be that teachers, parents, and doctors are more likely to raise a concern for ADHD in a kindergarten-age boy, withholding judgment on a kindergarten-age girl to see how she progresses throughout the year, when she may potentially catch up with her peers. Long before this study was published in 2018, Debate was already swirling around the best practices for diagnosing and treating ADHD. If 9.4% of kids were diagnosed, was it being diagnosed too often? Were our expectations for how young kids should behave in school unrealistic? What constituted normal behavior anyway? Did we need to rethink our overall approach to teaching young children? The birthday study added an alarming fact to the ongoing debate. Arbitrary factors like age cutoffs for school entry could be driving overdiagnosis and overtreatment for ADHD. There are other ways the relative age effect can manifest itself in our health. A study from the UK showed that the youngest kids in a school class year were not only more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD and intellectual disability, but also more likely to be diagnosed with depression. A review of data in Alberta, Canada, from 1979 to 1992, showed that among individuals under 20 who committed suicide, a disproportionate share, 55.3%, were in the younger half of their school class. A study in Norway, meanwhile, 
found that being young for your grade was associated with increased probability of teenage pregnancy. The relative age effect has been shown to affect classroom outcomes beyond a child's health. In a study of children in England with a school entry cutoff of September 1st, researchers found that standardized test scores were consistently lower for boys and girls born in August compared with their older September-born peers. The size of the effect, which they called the August birth penalty, was most pronounced in the youngest kids they studied, the five-year-olds, though it was present as old as age 18. After accounting for other potential factors, such as when other kids in a given class were born, when in the school year kids entered their class, or whether kids switched schools, the researchers came to the conclusion that the major reason why August-born children perform significantly worse than September-born children in the key stage tests is simply that they are almost a year younger when they sit for them. A study by economists of children in Florida showed similar findings. August-born kids had lower standardized test scores than September-born kids. Additional analyses shed light on how this effect could ripple throughout a child's educational career. Compared with September-born kids, the August-born kids were also more likely to be diagnosed with behavioral, cognitive, or physical disabilities, and more likely to be in remedial reading or math courses. August-born kids were less likely to be enrolled in programs for gifted students, less likely to be enrolled in advanced reading or math courses, less likely to be enrolled in advanced placement courses, and less likely to graduate from high school on the standard schedule. By and large, the effects remained even after controlling for gender, race, and maternal level of education. So, what do we make of all of this? Let's go back to Tom Brady. By redshirting, Brady got an extra year to focus on self-improvement before officially starting his college football career. It's impossible to know for certain the effect of that one year. But even if the effect was small, it's not hard to imagine it might have made the difference between being picked 199th in the NFL draft that year out of 254 drafted players and not being selected at all. Perhaps without his redshirt year, Tom Brady wouldn't be the household name he is today. You don't have to be a football fan to wonder what an extra year of preparation might do for a kid with an August birthday. The Brown University economist Emily Oster, in her book The Family Firm, raises a provocative question. Should parents of kids with summer birthdays redshirt their kindergartners, hold them back for a year before starting school? On the one hand, it would help children avoid the adverse consequences of the relative age effect. On the other, parents would have to consider whether whatever their child would be doing for that extra year would actually be better for them than starting school and accept with it any risk of the relative age effect. The jury on that question is still out. We'll be right back. brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or 
get goofy officially, step up like a boss and save the day, or see what life's like under the tree of life. Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. And now, more from Random Acts of Medicine. The relative age effect, at its core, highlights two important concepts when it comes to health. We have discussed the first one already, that a child's age relative to their peers can affect long-term health and educational outcomes. The second one may be less obvious. It centers on the critical role that diagnosis plays in medicine and the problems that can occur when diagnoses involve some degree of subjectivity. While for pro hockey players, the relative age effect is a piece of interesting trivia, it's a lot more serious when it shows up in kindergarten classrooms and stimulant prescriptions for five-year-olds. And while one could interpret our study's findings to suggest that the relative age effect was resulting in kids born in September being underdiagnosed with ADHD, research suggests it's more likely that it's the August-born kids who are being overdiagnosed and overtreated. Overdiagnosing patients with conditions they don't truly have is a problem that can extend well beyond a line in their medical chart or an unnecessary prescription or two. It can send patients down long paths with cascading events that can shape their care for many years. Diagnosis and treatment for any medical condition even if the diagnosis is made on shaky grounds, can persist indefinitely. Let's be clear, there are plenty of kids born in August who are accurately diagnosed with ADHD and who greatly benefit from treatment. But the relative age effect seen in our study suggests that some fraction of kids born in August and diagnosed with ADHD would not have been similarly diagnosed had they been born in September. Some kids grow out of that diagnosis. Others do not. The fact is that once patients are started down certain paths of care, it can be hard to divert them, even if they should have never been on that path in the first place. One study by me, Michael Barnett, and Andrew Alinsky showed that patients who were treated by emergency doctors who tend to prescribe more opioids than their peers were more likely not only to receive an opioid prescription but to maintain ongoing opioid prescriptions 
long after their emergency visit. Surely, some of those patients would have improved with the passing of time. In other words, some patients ended up on long term opioid therapy to treat their pain simply because they happened to be seen by one doctor rather than another, not because their pain was truly worse or its underlying cause more severe. In a similar study by the Harvard medical student Zhou Shi, the Harvard physician and researcher Atib Marotra, I, and others, Patients with upper respiratory infections who were, again by chance, treated by urgent care doctors who tend to prescribe more antibiotics, even though antibiotics don't help with the majority of infections, which are viral, were more likely to be prescribed an antibiotic by them. No surprise there. But what was surprising is that those patients were more likely to receive antibiotics for infections in the future, too, by different doctors. These patients given antibiotics in the past that worked were presumably more likely to seek out antibiotics and receive them in the future. Just like with opioids, some patients, perhaps even most, would have gotten better without antibiotics. And again, there were downstream consequences. Had patients seen an urgent care doctor with a different set of tendencies, they might take fewer antibiotics across a lifetime. We noted earlier that part of the challenge when it comes to diagnosing ADHD lies in its subjectivity. Now, there is some process of subjectivity involved in the process of deciding things like cutoff values for objective diagnostic tests. For example, a hemoglobin A1C test above 6.5% indicates diabetes, while a systolic blood pressure above 130 or a diastolic pressure above 80 indicates hypertension. But when it comes to making diagnoses, there is certainly less subjectivity in diagnosing diabetes or hypertension than there is diagnosing ADHD. ADHD is based on the presence of hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattentiveness. If you look at a full list of the associated symptoms, it's not hard to see how subjectivity can factor into a diagnosis. Fidgetiness, difficulty remaining seated, inappropriate running around or climbing, difficulty playing quietly, always being on the go, excessive talking, difficulty waiting turns, blurting out answers too quickly, interrupting others, inattention to detail, making careless mistakes, difficulty maintaining attention, seeming not to listen, difficulty organizing. Failing to follow through on tasks, losing objects, being easily distracted by irrelevant stimuli, or being forgetful in routine activities. Putting aside the question of whether these symptoms are even all that abnormal for a five year old, or for that matter, for fidgety adults such as ourselves, we can all agree that in general, kindergartners and first graders struggle to remain seated for long periods of time. Will make noise and run around when they play, and will occasionally ignore adults. Absent the kinds of objective criteria upon which most medical conditions are diagnosed, such as laboratory, imaging, or physiological measurements, it's only natural that we'd compare kids with their peers, making way for relative age effects in the way teachers, doctors, and parents assess them.
We're sympathetic to our pediatrician colleagues. They're trying their best with the information they have, and making an ADHD diagnosis is often challenging. Even gathering accurate information on a child can be difficult, coming secondhand from a parent or a caregiver, as it often does. Or a doctor might have plenty of data, but then have to extract the pertinent data points. It's an unenviable task. Diagnosis might seem easier to achieve in areas where objective measures exist, hard and fast numbers such as blood pressure and cell counts. If only it were so. Even with all the right information in hand, the number of diseases that could explain a given set of symptoms or laboratory values can be enormous. The same disease may also not present the same way in each patient. For one patient, a heart attack may present as crushing substernal chest pain accompanied by sweating and shortness of breath. For another patient, the symptoms may feel like heartburn or indigestion, neck pain or arm pain. These are less common, but they do happen. In the end, we as doctors have to pull together whatever data we have and arrive at an answer. We do so using a combination of conscious reasoning and subconscious pattern recognition. It's a human process, in other words, and one that is susceptible to all the biases and mental shortcuts that routinely lead us humans down the wrong path. The relative age effect in ADHD is an example of a bias known in behavioral science as the representativeness heuristic. It's easier to compare all kindergartners with one set of so-called normal behaviors than it is to figure out where each individual kid may be along the typical developmental timeline. Our mind uses a heuristic, a mental shortcut, to apply expectations to things that appear to belong to the same category. The representativeness heuristic tells us this is how kindergartners should act, glossing over the reality that kindergartners who are nearly a year apart in age could reasonably be expected to behave very differently from one another. Heuristics can be helpful in our daily lives. We can safely assume that a given grocery store will sell eggs and milk, even if we haven't been to the store before, because that's what grocery stores generally do. But it can lead to problematic biases in ADHD and beyond, such as in the operating room, as we'll see in Chapter 8. Availability bias is another example of the way that diagnoses can routinely be skewed. It happens when we pull from our most recent experiences in making an assessment. A classic study from the renowned behavioral scientists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman asked subjects to imagine a typical text in the English language and to consider the letter R. They then asked if R was more likely to appear as the first letter in a word, or as the third letter in a word. They did the same for the letters K, L, N, and V. The researcher's choice of letters wasn't arbitrary. Each appears more often in the third position in English words than in the first position. For each letter, however, a majority of study subjects said the opposite, that the letters appeared in the first position more often. The culprit was the availability bias. It's simply much easier to think of words that start with R than it is to think of words with R in the third position. 
words with an initial R are more available in our minds. And in case you were wondering, this paragraph contains only three words beginning with R, all of them the letter R itself, and eight words with R in the third position. A study by the UCLA physician economist Dan Lee showed how the availability heuristic can affect a doctor's diagnostic reasoning. Looking at records of more than 7,300 physicians, the study examined the way pulmonary embolism is diagnosed, a blood clot in the lung that can cause shortness of breath. At baseline, doctors used either a blood test or a CT scan in about 9% of patients who showed up at a Veterans Affairs Hospital emergency room complaining of shortness of breath. However, after diagnosing one patient with a pulmonary embolism, doctors started testing for them more often in subsequent patients. In the 10 days after a pulmonary embolism diagnosis, doctors tested an additional 1.4% of patients before eventually returning to their baseline. While this is not a huge effect percentage-wise, with an estimated 130 million emergency department visits in the United States annually, this effect would translate to thousands of additional scans every year. We can reasonably assume that the subsequent patient's symptoms were unrelated to those of the original patient. The first case wasn't a patient zero and a sudden outbreak of embolisms, which, to be clear, are not infectious. Doctors started testing for pulmonary embolisms more often simply because they had recently diagnosed one. Pulmonary embolism was more available in their minds. We'll be talking a lot about cognitive biases and how they affect physician behavior in the following chapters. Suffice it to say for now that even with all the training it requires to become a doctor, we are far from immune to the failures caused by these mental shortcuts. Gurpreet Dhaliwal writes and speaks powerfully about how doctors make diagnoses and the role that biases often play. Practicing and teaching at the University of California, San Francisco, Dhaliwal is a physician whom fellow doctors might refer to as a master clinician, someone who has carefully honed the art and craft of making diagnoses. Without ever giving it any thought, he writes in the Journal of the American Medical Association, most students and physicians come to reason adequately using the same inborn neural circuitry we use to reason through life's myriad situations that require us to diagnose and act. It's this inborn neural circuitry that causes us to take mental shortcuts and that can add up to cognitive biases. The answer, Dhaliwal says, is for doctors to focus on the diagnostic reasoning process itself, to view it as a procedure worthy of improvement and mastery. Only then can we begin to overcome the tendencies that may be coloring our decisions. In other words, you can't prevent having your last patient influence the way you search for a diagnosis on the next one unless you're aware of the bias. You can't diagnose a young patient's behavioral issues at school more accurately without acknowledging the role that their relative age might be playing on people's judgments. As parents ourselves, we know how easy it is to look at our child's behavior and ask, for example, is this normal for a three-year-old? We forget that besides there being a wide range of normal behavior, 
there is also a wide range of ages within the class of three-year-olds or kindergartners or first graders. We are by no means implying that teachers, pediatricians, and parents don't already do these things. Many do. But the data suggests that somewhere along the teacher-parent-doctor pathway, the relative age effect, coupled with a representative heuristic, takes hold. And since when it comes to diagnosis and treatment, the buck stops with the doctor, it could be beneficial to introduce tools to remind doctors of relative age. It lends itself to some low-hanging potential fixes. Here's one. Electronic health records could flag patients who are young for their class so that when a pediatrician hears about behavior that is potentially abnormal, they interpret it in the right context. That was an excerpt from my new book, Random Acts of Medicine, with Dr. Chris Worsham. If you'd like to hear more, the book is available today, and Chris and I recorded the audiobook ourselves. Now for a final announcement. Today is the last episode of Freakonomics MD. But don't worry, I have a transition plan for us. Chris and I are starting a new weekly newsletter on Substack called Random Acts of Medicine. It'll give us an opportunity to connect with you better, to answer questions, and to do something that has always been important to me. Help people think differently when it comes to medicine and your health. Every week, we'll talk about some of the most interesting research that we see, and we'll share the latest new findings and questions of our own. I'll also be starting a Random Acts of Medicine podcast, and our newsletter is where you'll hear about it first. So please buy the book and subscribe to the newsletter. It'll be fun. The last thing I want to say is thank you. Thank you to Stephen Dubner, who planted the seed of an idea for this podcast, and thank you to my producer, Julie Canfer, and the rest of the Freakonomics team for helping that seed grow. But the real nourishment came from all of you. It's been the privilege of a lifetime to share how I think about the world of medicine, to meet so many different people, and to have a lot of fun doing it. Every week, you've devoted a portion of your busy lives to me, and for that, I'll always be grateful. So, thank you, and we'll talk soon. The Freakonomics Radio Network includes Freakonomics Radio, No Stupid Questions, People I Mostly Admire, and The Economics of Everyday Things. All our shows are produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. This podcast release was produced by Julie Canfer and mixed by Eleanor Osborne. Original music by Luis Guerra. The complete audiobook of Random Acts of Medicine is available from Random House Audio. Thanks for listening. The Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.